0: Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 14, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Seventy-five years ago, on September 18, 1947, the National Security Act, a major restructuring of the U.S. military and intelligence agencies, went into effect. It created the National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency, headed by the Director of Central Intelligence. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Edinburgh, Roderick Jeffries Jones. His latest book, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA, published by Oxford University Press, examines how the influence of the CIA has shifted with its standing with different presidents, congresses, and the U.S. as well as international public over time. His reputation as an intelligence authority has been long established, with earlier books such as The CIA and American Democracy, Cloak & Dollar, A History of American Secret Intelligence, In Spies We Trust, The Story of Western Intelligence, and The FBI, A History. We spoke with Professor Jeffries Jones on October 11th, 2022, via Skype from his home in Edinburgh, Scotland. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Rodri Jeffries Jones. Thank you for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, Joy.
0: Rodri, your latest book, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA, uses the concept of the CIA's standing with the president, the public, and even the international community to gauge the ups and downs of the CIA over its 75 years. What does standing mean and how do you evaluate it in your history?
1: Well, standing can have different dimensions the standing of the CIA in the White House is clearly important. And a lot of people say that the CIA has to have the year of the president. So one way of approaching that is to ask, has the CIA merited the respect of the president? Another approach is to ask whether the president is interested in intelligent matters and is qualified to understand them. But also, the standing of the CIA with the American people is very important. It was established in 1947, and it is important to note that it was established by virtue of an act of Congress. Now, this was the first such intelligence agency in world history to have the explicit consent of the people through their elected uh, representatives. I think that has given it considerable authority and and standing in uh, American society. And this has a practical angle in that the CIA depends on a congressional consent for its budget, especially on the House of Representatives. And the CIA is overseen by committees from both houses, the House of Representatives and, and the Senate. So it's standing in, in, in Congress is important. And finally, I think there's the relationship between the standing of the CIA and the standing of the United States, what the CIA has done abroad has helped to mold international opinion. And what people think of America sometimes, indeed, very often is affected by what they uh, perceive the CIA to be doing.
0: Every nation state needs to know what allies and adversaries are up to. So something like a central intelligence agency is not surprising. However, as you just pointed out, the CIA was the first democratically sanctioned secret intelligence agency in world history. It had a legacy in the United States that can be traced back to George Washington. Would you briefly share with us that progression up to its founding in in 1947?
1: I think that's an important thing to do because very often people emphasize the Immediate precursor of the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, which was a World War II intelligence agency. But I think that to understand the CIA, one must go right back to George Washington. Now, Washington was a great believer in intelligence and used it to help him to gain victory in the war against the British, the War of Independence. And then, once America had achieved its independence, he asked for and obtained from Congress a contingency fund allowing him to run espionage without having to explain how he spent the, the, the money. Now, this amounted by the mid-1790s to 12% of the annual budget. And it's quite interesting to look at the budget of the in, in intelligence community today and compare it with that period, because the intelligence community takes up about 10% of the 800 billion defense budgets in the United States, and the defense budget is only one part of the total federal budget. So Washington asked for a lot more money in relation to other activities than the CIA and the intelligence community does today. But in Washington's day, and the same can be said of his immediate successors, espionage wasn't really organized. On an institutional basis, it was a question of running individual spies in particular operations. The first uh, institution one can speak of is the United States Secret Service established by President Lincoln in his last cabinet meeting just before he was assassinated in 1865. The Secret Service was established primarily to chase down counterfeiters. The greenback dollar had been floated, and in order to maintain the integrity of the currency in the face of counterfeiters. The government under Lincoln established a secret service. The secret service then had a kind of checkered history because it was asked by Congress in the 1870s to tackle the Ku Klux Klan, which it did successfully, penetrating the Klan in the early 1870s and leading to its being crushed at that point, although it revived later. And in the later period, uh, the War of 1898, the secret service took care of counter-espionage, on behalf of the United States government breaking up, aspiring in the Montreal organized by the Spanish. So the Secret Service, and then along came the Federal Bureau of Investigation, originally known as simply the Bureau of Investigation, established in 1908, when President Theodore Roosevelt wanted an institution that could investigate land fraud in the American West. But gradually, the remit of the FBI expanded. In the First World War, it began to dabble in counter And gradually, the Secret Service was confined to looking out to the safety of the American president. In the course of World War I itself, there was quite an expansion in military intelligence. But also, very interestingly, if you want to find out about the origins of the CIA, there was an organization called U-1, the letter u taken from the first letter in Undersecretary. The Undersecretary of State was the number two guy in the State Department. And U1 had the responsibility of coordinating the whole of the American intelligence effort. It was highly secretive, and for that reason, not many people know about it today. U1 continued to operate right up until 1926, when the federal government, in a period of of, perhaps naive foreign policy, decided it wanted to clean up its act, and it dissolved both UN and an American code-breaking agency known as the Black Chamber. So by the time you get to the 1930s, you have the branches of the armed services, the Army and the Navy, each with their intelligence uh, capacity, and you have the FBI and the Secret Service limited to a minor role. But on the eve of the Second World War, it was realized that something more potent was required. At first, it seemed that J. Edgar Hoover's FBI would step into the role, and he was very ambitious to preside over an agency which would take care of foreign policy matters as well as domestic policy. But then, during the course of the war in 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt established the Office of Strategic Services under a charismatic leader called William Donovan, Wild Bill uh, Donovan, That lasted until 1945, when President Truman, who had succeeded President Roosevelt, dissolved it. Truman wasn't very keen on the OSS, didn't think it had achieved very much, and worked his way towards establishing the CIA in 1947.
0: As you point out in your book, the FBI, not only did it have espionage in the United States, but it also covered Latin America, uh, Central and South America. That was news to me, as much in your book is news to me. So, as we said, the Congress creates in the National Security Act of 1947 the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, as well as the changing the War Department to the Department of Defense. That was quite a linguistic coup. But I'm impressed with how the various actions of the CIA over time have created repercussions that we, we can see even this week in the news. For example, as the streets of Iran run red with the blood of demonstrators against the ultra-conservative Islamic Republic regime, One thinks of the role of the CIA in overturning the democratically elected government of Mohamed Mossadegh in 1953 with the installation of the Shah, as well as that of President Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. One can understand the need for intelligence gathering and analysis, but the CIA also from pretty early on engaged in covert operations. How was this justified in the eyes of the perpetrators?
1: Well, I think you're right in saying that the predicament of present-day Iran goes back to that very unfortunate event in uh, 1953. How did this all come about? I think that one needs to go back to the Montevideo conference of 1933. Prior to 1933, the United States would engage in gunboat diplomacy, that is, If there was trouble with a a Latin American or a South American state of what was defined by the United States as trouble, meaning there was a threat to perceived United States interests, it would send in a gunboat or perhaps more frequently send in the Marines. And the Marines would uh, occupy the country until it came to its senses. But this kind of policy naturally was extremely unpopular in South America, where anti-Yankee feeling was uh, very widespread. And... In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt, at the Montevideo Conference of American States, agreed, together with the other states, that no American state should intervene in the internal affairs of another state. Now, that worked fine until the outbreak of the Cold War. In the Cold War, American politicians still wanted to influence in some way the events in South America, but they couldn't do so By previous means, sending in an armed contingent. So they resorted to subterfuge instead, trying to achieve things secretly. I think another background factor is the foundation of the United Nations, which, of course, was an American development, founded at a conference in San Francisco. Its headquarters is still in New York City. The United Nations Charter prohibited the achievement of international goals by means of war. Since then, we've had a whole series of undeclared wars. But in the case of the United States, instead of conducting undeclared wars in the Western Hemisphere, it resorted to undercover methods instead, hoping that it wouldn't be caught out. Of course, the underlying fear in the early 1950s was the spread of communism. So people very often justified Insofar as they had to justify these activities, they justified the the actions of the CIA in those terms. When I say insofar as they had to justify, I say that because although in the countries affected, it was common knowledge that the CIA had intervened in the politics of their countries. The American people were kept in the dark and the American public didn't really find out what the CIA had been up to in these countries until revelations started from 1967 onwards.
0: Let's take just a moment and talk about exactly what the CIA, and let's also acknowledge that the United Kingdom was involved in the overthrow of Mohammad Masadek as well. The reason I want to focus on it briefly is because things are very polarized in the United States these days. We've experienced what many consider an insurrection on January 6, 2021. And it's an example of how fragile democracies can be, and how, with just a few people, they can be overturned. So, what did the CIA do in Iran in 1953?
1: Well, in uh, 1953, as you say, the, the, uh, the British were also involved. And when Kermit Roosevelt, who was the CIA guy in charge in Iran, passed through London and visited Winston Churchill, who was at the time prime minister, and boasted about the role of the CIA in overthrowing the governments of Iran, Churchill thought him rather naive and didn't say anything at the time because Churchill knew full well that the British Secret Service, the uh, MISX, had been collaborating with Anglo-Iranian Oil, the the main oil oil company in Iran, to seek the overthrow of Mossadegh. Mossadegh wanted to bring some portion of the revenue derived from the oil industry and use it for the benefit of the Iranian people. And, And this had been conceded in other countries. But in the case of Iran, the Anglo company was holding out for the maximizations of its profits. So the British had lined up a number of uh, faux demonstrations and demonstrators, people who would mimic a popular uprising in the streets of Tehran with a view of creating panic in the government and bringing about its downfall. What the Americans did essentially was to step in with green dollars and distribute them to the renter crowd, paying for the people to demonstrate because the British were pretty short of cash at that time, and the American money was very welcome. But really, it was a co- collaborative effort between the two secret services and the oil company concerned.
0: It was only just a few thousand people in the streets, right?
1: That's right. Yes, that's enough to create a feeling of panic, especially if it takes place in the in the capital city of a country.
0: Roger, you have mentioned United States interests. And in both of these examples, they're really the interests of corporations. You have mentioned in your book that there's a certain hypocrisy in this because there are elements of socialism in both the United States and the United Kingdom. And this can be misunderstood in the United States as being synonymous with communism, which is just a death knell of any discussion. Would you briefly explain to our listeners the differences between socialism and communism and perhaps give some examples?
1: Well, I think that socialism is a philosophy that is distributive. It means that society should do something for the less privileged and and the poorer sections of the community as well as for the well-off, for example, by having such institutions as Medicare and welfare payments. It also will look at the desirability of public ownership of certain assets. For example, the United States has the largest publicly owned enterprise in the world, which is the New York and New Jersey Port Authority, which owns, incidentally, amongst other things, the the Twin Towers. So that when the 9-11 attack took place... I'm not quite sure that Al-Qaeda recognised that they were attacking not the bastion of American capitalism, but what could be interpreted as an expression of American socialism. And indeed, most of the people working in the 9-11 tower were government employees, including a good number of FBI employees. So that's a rough, rough definition of socialism. It can coincide very uh, uh, easily with a a democratic society. Now, communism, there is a utopian definition of communism, which is not very far removed from Christian doctrine. But in practice, unfortunately, communism has fallen into the hands of oligarchs who run countries in an undemocratic way, although they say that it is in the name of a dictatorship of the proletariat. They tend to be self-nominated representatives of that proletariat, and the result is a society in which freedom of expression is suppressed. Furthermore, the principle of public ownership is taken to extreme degrees, so that you don't have opportunities for private enterprise, and you have state monopolies which are rather inefficient. You have state management of the financial systems, so that you don't know the true value of the ruble, or the yen, or whatever currency you happen to be dealing with. Now, the Soviet Union was uh, an example of this. I think they got away with it to a degree because they ha- they were in a takeoff society. Society was just beginning to industrialize, and prosperity was going to come for that reason, no matter what kind of regime you had. But ultimately, it proved to be an inefficient system, and communism collapsed. I think you have that system in principle in China, where they had certainly a, a di- dictatorship by people claiming to act in the name of the proletariat, in spite of the fact that China had uh, really a peasantry rather than a proletariat at a time when Mao, the Chinese communist, needed t- took over. But today, I think the picture has changed and Chinese communism exists no more except in terms of nomenclature, the communist party is still in control and calls itself the communist party but what you have in fact is oligarchic capitalism
0: we've discussed the covert operations of the more bloody kind but there was also in the 1950s a very active cultural propaganda program could you give us some examples of those and not just in foreign countries but in the united states as well
1: well in foreign countries the United States invested in cultural artifacts, magazines, art galleries, cultural festivals from the 1940s on. To give an example, there was a very influential intellectual magazine called Encounter, to which many distinguished British commentators contributed and the British intellectuals. And it was all paid for by the CIA. And the distinction here is between those who were witting that is, people who received CIA money and knew that they were receiving it were called witting and the unwitting. It caused considerable bitterness when all this was revealed in an article in Ramparts, the West Coast Catholic radical magazine in 1967. It caused bitterness in the countries affected because you could point a finger at someone who'd been subsidized by the CIA and that certainly wasn't very good for their political and moral uh, reputation. But the problem was that they might have accepted CIA money without knowing where the money came from because the, the money was organized through front organizations. The Organization for Cultural Freedom, for example, based in Paris, and a whole number of organizations, for example, the National Students Association, the American Association, which represented university students, would send representatives abroad, well-financed people who would encourage like-minded students in other countries and all with CIA money. There again, who was witting? Some of these student leaders knew that they were being subsidized by the CIA, and others didn't. So that's the American dimension, the exposures of 1967 with the ramparts in the the lead, and then New York Times and other newspapers latching onto that, discovered that it wasn't just students who were affected, but journalists were being subsidized by the CIA with a... without the knowledge of their newspaper proprietors back in the United States. Religious organizations, women's organizations were subsidized by the United States to send women abroad to encourage women in other countries to move politically in certain directions. And when that came out, it was highly controversial, not just for the ethical objections that it could stimulate, but also because in the law of 1947 which established the cia the agency was prohibited from operating within the united states fbi had the domestic remit and the cia had the foreign remit there was a reason for that there was Great opposition, especially from President Truman, for example, to the idea that there should be one omnipotent intelligence agency that was considered to be reminiscent of the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. So one way of kind of weakening the overall impact of the intelligence community was to divide it. So when it was discovered that the CIA had overstepped the boundary and was recruiting people from American voluntary organizations on on a widespread basis. There was widespread criticism.
0: Your book recounts much of what happens in the 1950s, which we don't have time to go into. The next big event was what we can call the Bay of Pigs fiasco. In 1961, it begins. In the interest of times, as contemporaries, what should we glean from that affair?
1: Well, I think the first point to to note is that it was not the first failure. You've already mentioned the overthrow of the governments of Iran and Guatemala, both democratically elected in the previous decade. Now That was represented in administrative circles in the United States government as a success. But I would describe it actually as failure masquerading as success because it has a, a, a terrible effect on opinion of the United States In those countries, there was um, a journalist called Thomas Morgan, toured the world in the 1960s, asking why people were anti-American. He didn't ask people why they were pro-American. His specific question was, why were people anti-American? And I was very surprised when I read the book, because I thought that anti-Americanism would spring primarily from the role of America in the Vietnam War. But actually, no, what really caused people to be anti-American was the, the antics of the CIA. So all that was a disaster prior to the Bay of Pigs. But the Bay of Pigs was still represented as a disaster because it failed in its objective of overthrowing the government of Cuba. In this case, as it happens, not a democratically elected government. Although, as the CIA analysts pointed out at the time, Fidel Castro, who was the leader of Cuba, had the support of the, of the vast majority of the Cuban people. So the Bay of Pigs pricked the bubble of beliefs that people had even when those beliefs were mistaken. That is, a mistaken belief that it was a good idea to overthrow um, the governments of other nations by secret means. But it was a turning point in another way, according to the journalist Stuart Alsop, who said at the time that it was uh, an attack on the way in which American intelligence had been run by an Ivy League elite, the, the WASP. Contingency. You can also add that, um, in in, in addition to being white Anglo Saxon Protestants, they were all men. You say it was run by quite a narrow clique of people up until the Bay of Pigs, and also argued that as a result of the Bay of Pigs, uh, the Ivy League people, such as Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, had gone to Princeton and so on, they were swept away. Uh, Dulles himself was fired by President John F. Kennedy, and in their place, came people that um, also regarded as dull technocrats. These people were less interested in having good fun and overthrowing foreign governments and interfering with the cultures of foreign nations and launching literary magazines and all this. They were more concerned with the serious business of finding out precisely what the atomic capabilities of the Soviet Union were and so on.
0: Again, this brings us to our uh, very contemporary situation. This was part of the Cuban Missile Crisis era, in which much of the world was terrified of nuclear annihilation. Now, coming from Moscow and the United States, now, again, threats of nuclear first strikes coming from Moscow. You document certain failures of uh, U.S. intelligence in the 50s, et cetera. In the current situation, it seems that the intelligence was actually very good in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine eight months ago or so. Do you have any comments on the situations, comparison, or differences?
1: Well, think of the 1950s. Soviet intelligence, as run by the CIA, was very good and played a, a crucial role in keeping the world away from the brink of nuclear disaster. The military in the United States insisted that the Soviet Union were producing far more nuclear bombers and nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles than, in fact, was the case. And the CIA disproved all that. There was no missile gap. There was no bomber gap. President Eisenhower, who, of course, had bags of military experience from his role in the Second World War, could see that the CIA was making a good case And he moderated American policy accordingly. In the case of the um, Cuban missile crisis, the CIA performed, I think, a a crucial role in alerting John F. Kennedy to precisely what was going on at ground level in Cuba using U-2's high-level reconnaissance aircraft, using U-2 airplanes to take photographs of what what was happening on the ground. And using the expertise at their disposal to determine that these were missile silos and defences of missile silos constructed on the ground. And that gave President Kennedy the vital extra time to consider the problem, consider his response, which was measured, and to come to an agreement and accord with Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, his opposite number in Moscow. Of course, Khrushchev also deserves credit for averting that catastrophe. The situation in the Ukraine today, I, I think that uh, some criticism has been vice of the CIA's not anticipating that the ukrainians would would hold out so effectively against the Russian invasion. First, the CIA is held not to have appreciated the, the fighting spirit of the Ukrainians in spite of the fact that they're not they weren't particularly well equipped to fight. They were going to fight for their country. and secondly, The CIA didn't uh, realize just how inefficient the Russian forces were, especially in regard to uh, corruption, poor standards of equipment, poor discipline, and so on. Well, I'm not entirely sure that these rumors coming out of Langley, perhaps by disaffected intelligence people, are well-founded. In fact, on the contrary, I'm, I'm really impressed by the current director of the CIA, William J. Burns. Burns is a former ambassador to Moscow, he knows Russia inside out, he can be relied on, I think, to make sure that the CIA is doing everything in its power to help the Ukraine to resist Russian advances and to reverse those advantages, putting at its disposal, the considerable arsenal of intelligence at the disposal of the CIA. I'd like to add that Burns is also the son of a general who was at the elbow of President Reagan when President Reagan reached an arms accord with the Soviet Union back in the 1980s. And Burns, I think, also, as you can see from his book, The Back Channel is called. It's right in front of me. In his book, The Back Channel, Burns shows how committed he is to discrete diplomacy as opposed to populist diplomacy making approaches to the Russians behind the scenes. And I think that in addition to supporting the, Ukra- the Ukrainians, she's in a position to open lines of communication with the Russians and perhaps to bring this dreadful uh, conflict to an end.
0: We're going to have to pass over vast amounts of information, Rodri, in your book, CIA, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. The reform efforts in the 1970s, you've already mentioned the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, Ronald Reagan's role in that. But the 1980s were uh, replete with, I don't know if crazy is too inaccurate a word, but it saw us Consorting with the Iran regime, which had only recently released 400 hostages, it saw interference in efforts in Central America to overthrow tyranny, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this was largely done by the Reagan administration in direct contravention of of efforts by the Congress to prevent these sorts of things happening. It's far too complex to go into detail. But what was the role of the CIA during this time, leading up to the Iran-Contra trials and the exposés that they revealed?
1: The CIA emerges from this period as a broad church with several strands and uh, several different different opinions within the agency as to what should be done. It was led at the time by a chap called Bill Casey, who was the last of the OSS generation. There were four leaders of the CIA who'd uh, served with the OSS. And Casey had the kind of uh, gung-ho attitude that when associated with that wartime agency, which was an attitude not very well placed, for example, to conduct peacetime affairs, now, Casey was uh, an ultimate uh, cold warrior, didn't trust the Soviet uh, Union at all, was given its seats in the cabinets by President Reagan, which is unusual because the director of the CIA, like the CIA as a whole, is supposed to be outside politics. And Casey was behind the Iran-Contra affair, whereby the Iranians were uh, supplied with weapons, supplied by the Israelis with weapons which they needed in their war with Iraq. And they would in turn support the Contra movement in Nicaragua to try to overthrow the democratically elected government of uh, Nicaragua because that government was left-leaning and not to the liking of people like Casey and the Reagan administration. When it came to dealing with the Soviet Union, I think it's a very complex picture and hard to get at the absolute truth. But there is an argument which runs like this. It's called the the victory argument. The argument here is that America won the Cold War in the sense that Russia was forced to cease and desist from the arms race and was forced to give up communism, leading to the collapse of communism throughout Europe. No more communism left in in Europe. And how did they do it? Well, on the one hand, the CIA ran its usual gamuts of covert operations against the Soviet Union, trying to sabotage the economy, and so on. That had been going on for years, and it probably didn't play a decisive role. What's really interesting is the argument that the CIA underpinned the estimates behind the Star Wars program. Now, Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative, was launched by the Reagan administration, a multi billion program to use space technology to shoot down incoming missiles, which would have given the United States a decisive edge in the arms race with the Soviet Union had this gone ahead. Well, it did go ahead eventually, but it, it was being mooted in the 1980s. Now, in order to convince Congress that Star Wars was necessary, it was crucial to be able to show that the Soviet Union was not interested in peace and was building up a, a horrendously big arsenal itself. The country was the case. The Soviet Union was not doing this, and the Soviet Union was interested in peace overtures. But by persuading Congress to agreed to Star Wars, to the Strategic Defense Initiative, then the Soviet Union was confronted with the imminent probability of bankruptcy should they choose to compete with the Americans, which they couldn't because their economy was too weak. And therefore, they were forced to the negotiating table, agreed to arms limitations greatly to the benefits of world peace. And that lasted right up into the present century. So that's an interpretation of what happened. The role played by individuals is uh, interesting. I, I don't think that Casey was sophisticated enough to have played this particular card, but others might have been. For example, Robert Gates, who was later on the director of the CIA. It was he who set up the unit called SOVA, the Soviet analysis unit. And I think he may well have played the game of exaggerating Soviet military potential to persuade Congress in order that uh, Congress would agree to this huge spending program, which would then bankrupt or threaten the bankrupt of the Soviet Union and bring them to the negotiating table. So it, it really is a Byzantine scene.
0: And of course, during that era, the Soviet Union was enmeshed in their war in Afghanistan. The CIA was supplying weapons to the Mujahideen. And again, we're, we're still dealing with the repercussions of all that, which we can't go into. But I, do, I did want to remind our listeners about that. So in 1947, the raison d'etre for creating the CIA was in opposition to the Soviet Union, the Cold War. The Soviet Union dissolves, and so there were the existential issues about what what happens with the CIA. Um, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat from New York, hated the CIA. And he made efforts to abolish the CIA in, in 1995, which didn't really go anywhere. But just in time, terrorism entered the world consciousness as the new thing that we had to unite behind and overcome. In the remaining time that we have, Rodri, tell us about how terrorism revived not just the CIA but the intelligence community in general in the United States, but focusing on the CIA.
1: Moynihan, uh, as you suggested, wanted to abolish the CIA. He, he was uh, anti CIA. He, when he was ambassador to India, the CIA had been charging around like an elephant and causing all kinds of embarrassments. And m- Mrs. Gandhi, who was the prime minister of India at the time, feared that the CIA wanted to assassinate her because. She'd heard all these stories about other countries. But Moynihan, in spite of his, his pers- personal antipathy for the CIA, didn't really have all that much support for his proposal and his, his bill when he introduced it to Congress got nowhere. Nevertheless, a lot of people in the 1990s felt the CIA had performed its role in the Cold War and now could be defunded. And this did happen. Its budgets declined pretty sharply until there arrived the challenge of terrorism, and the CIA duly established, established quite early on, that al-Qaeda was at the roots of much of the terrorist threats and that Osama bin Laden was the inspiration for these various atrocities that the terrorists were were, were committing. So by the end of uh, the century, the CIA was beginning to equip itself and was beginning to command increases in its budgets, as people could see The danger was forthcoming. However, one could argue that the picture presented about terrorism was mistaken. Certainly, uh, there were some pretty nasty and evil people uh, out there. But the argument was put within the CIA that the problem was people didn't look at what was at the roots of terrorism, and that is injustices in Arab and in Muslim societies, leading to discontent amongst young men. And these young men were going to support terrorist activity, regardless of whether Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were orchestrating the conspiracy. And one could argue that American policy thereafter continued to be based on a somewhat false premise that you had to combat terrorism as if it were some kind of evil conspiracy, which it was, but it was a conspiracy that reflected deep-seated discontents in wide swathes of the world where America could have pursued a more sensitive and constructive policy and perhaps diminished the enthusiasm of young people for these radical causes.
0: A series of events occurred in 1983, the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. So that was under Reagan's administration. As I mentioned, Afghanistan was happening in the USSR's invasion of that. We took a a covert op role in combating them. And this gave rise to the Mujahideen and the Taliban. And it was an opportunity for the globalization of the disaffected young people, as you mentioned, to focus on these issues then this eventually led of course to the twin towers uh 911 and the repercussions of that by then it was the George W Bush administration and there was a tremendous shock and a failure of intelligence the CIA you say was largely scapegoated for that what can you tell our listeners in terms of that and how that fed into the early 2000s, eventually leading to the invasion of Iraq by the United States?
1: it yes, yeah, did to, to supply some helpful intelligence on the forthcoming terrorist uh, attack. It, it had uh, found out how it was going to be uh, conducted. Uh, it found out that Bin Laden was planning such an attack. What it was able to do was to pinpoint the hour at which it would take place and the specific individuals who would be involved. But the problem is that some of these individuals were known, but not just to the CIA, they were known to other agencies such as the FBI and there was a lack of cooperation between various components of the intelligence agency and indeed uh, lack of cooperation between individuals in the administration and the intelligence uh, community, for example, Condoleezza Rice, although she made a special study of Pearl Harbor in her academic youth, as she herself pointed out, it was quite a different question when it tried to, came to, try to trying to predict a current uh, surprise attack such as uh, 9-11. So the CIA bore some responsibility, but by no means it was exclusively at fault for the 9-11 Disaster, But it became convenient to scapegoat the CIA because that was a diversion from the notion that perhaps the George W. Bush administration was responsible for the 9-11 attack. And indeed, it's somewhat of of a cliche in intelligence history that one of the roles of the director of the CIA is to be the fall guy for the president. John F. Kennedy made remarks to that effect when he fired Dulles. So the CIA became the scapegoat. Then 9-11 having taken place, uh, America was put on a kind of uh, pseudo-military footing. And the administration searched desperately for policies which would show that it was doing something about the terrorist threats. So invented the idea that Saddam Hussein, who was the president of Iraq and was certainly a mini-Hitler, he was operating by Hitler, Uh, but on a more limited scale, that he was encouraging terrorist activity. Now, this proved to be untrue. They decided they they wanted to unseat Hussein, achieving regime change, and indeed wanted to invade Iraq and overthrow his regime entirely, including his governing party. So they sought also a justification. They thought they had to go a step further, not enough to say that he's a mini-Hitler, not enough to say that he's orchestrating terrorism, had to be shown that he was a threat to the United States. And so we had the myth of the weapons of mass destruction, WMD. Allegedly, Hussein and Iraq were constructing chemical weapons and atomic weapons capable of inflicting damage on America and on the American people. This was an entirely mythical contention. I believe that uh, no serious analyst in the CIA believed that. But the CIA was nevertheless bulldozed into going along with that conspiracy theory, partly because it feared for its existence in the wake of 9-11, for which it had been scapegoated. So the result was a rash undertaking, the overthrow of the Iraq regime. Hussein went into hiding and was eventually discovered and eventually tried and executed. But the Ba'athite party, which had supported him in office and which had administrative experience, but was regarded as too left wing perhaps by the Bush administration, which is a right- wing party. The Baathists were purged from office as well, with the result that Iraq descended into chaos and became a more dangerous seedbed of terrorism than it had been previously. A total disaster.
0: Yes, and very disturbingly, the use of torture by the United States and administered by the CIA in in many instances. We only have a couple of minutes left. What do you want our listeners to know about the CIA's role in that?
1: Well, the CIA did have a role, knew what was going on, The torture was undertaken in conjunction with the military, but also with privatized components of the intelligence community. The CIA was certainly complicit in organizing a cover-up for the torture and pretending it had not taken place. And this remained a stain on its reputation well into the next decade.
0: Throughout your book, Rodri, you talk about the relationship between the CIA and administrations. How would you like to sum that up for our listeners as the final words today? I'm thinking about the resistance that former President Trump had to the analysis by the CIA and other intelligence agencies.
1: Well, Trump, I think, wanted to achieve a rapport with Moscow and with President uh, Putin. And Putin very, very unwisely decided to put into effect, in the case of the United States, what the United States had been doing to other countries for decades. That is, it, he used a covert operation in order to undermine the cam- presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton, and in order to put his friend Trump into office. John Brennan, who came to be director of the CIA, had personally warned the Russians what the outcome of this would be the plot would certainly be discovered and there would certainly be a backlash, which would be unfavorable to Russian interests. And this happened and meant that uh, Trump really, I think, became unelectable because of that issue. After, of course, he'd served one damaging term as president of the United States.
0: Well, Rodri Jeffrey Jones, thank you so much for being our guest today on Forthright Radio and writing your book, the CIA, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. We very much appreciate your work.
1: Thank you so much, Joy.
0: You have just heard a conversation with American history professor emeritus Rodri Jeffries Jones. His latest book, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA, is published by Oxford University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Tomorrow morning, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYXNZ, is beginning our fall pledge drive. The theme of the drive is Mendocino Connected. When KZYX was first heard on the airwaves way back in the fall of 1989, the situation in Mendocino County and the world was very different than it is today. The only way one could tune in was via the radio, and the range was limited by the power of the signal, the distance from the transmitter, and the ridges in the way. Today, one can listen via the stream pretty much anywhere on planet Earth one is connected to the Internet. When the folks who created this community radio station got together and did it, it would have been impossible to predict what would come of their efforts. They just thought it would be a good idea in the doing-it-for-ourselves spirit of the time. Right away, wonderful, innovative, eclective music programming hit the airwaves, featuring local musicians and whatever community DJs wanted to share, connecting us with music from ancient to contemporary and from just about anywhere in the world. And as for public affairs... KZYX connected us just in time for Redwood Summer, the first US invasion of Iraq, and the three-way election of George H.W. Bush, Ross Perot, and William Jefferson Clinton, on to the establishment of the WTO and NAFTA, the rise of Newt Gingrich, and his rhetoric of rancor, and on and on. Those were the early days. KZYX brought us information and entertainment, connecting Mendocino County with the rest of the country and the world. But soon, more and more communication was connected to and through the World Wide Web. And so now, Mendocino Connected means Mendocino Connected not just within the county, which KZYX does so much to facilitate, but Mendocino Connected to the entire world. How did this happen? it was the result of the dedication of many different people over these decades, working as staff, members of the board of directors, or volunteering to create the amazing diversity of programs. But none of this would have been possible without the financial support of our community who have donated the money needed to keep the station on the air. And that's why we bring it back to you to thank you and express our appreciation for your doing your part in keeping Mendocino County Public Broadcasting connected all these years. So, once again, it's time for us to come together and connect as a community to pool our resources and share our shekels. It's easy to do, too. You can go online at kzyx.org and click on support and then donate. It's secure and easy to follow. You can choose a one-time amount, but I encourage you to choose a monthly donation in an electronic fund transfer from your credit card or bank account. After all, you listen all during the month, right? You can also call the station during business hours at 707-895-2324. And if you're interested in a thank you gift, you can find a list on the donation page. But beyond that, I have to share with you that Mendocino Connected has a very personal meaning for me. I contracted Lyme disease, bringing in firewood in 1991, and within a few years, my condition had deteriorated so much that I was bedridden, living in isolation, and I was so ill I couldn't even read, but I could listen. And it is no exaggeration to say that KCYX was really my only connection to the outside world, whether that meant the rest of the county or farther beyond. And this was true for more years than I care to recount. Eventually, though, I became well enough to begin volunteering at the station, which was only a few minutes' drive from my home beyond the deep end of Anderson Valley. So I would stuff envelopes or remove that infernal plastic film from CDs or take your pledges during pledge drives or whatever else I could do at the Philo Mothership. But then I was able to read again, and as is my wont, I got all fired up about John M. Berry's book, The Great Influenza. I told then-program director Mary Eigner that she needed to have someone interview him. I was taken aback when she told me that I should do it. That was so not what I had in mind. But there was a gap in the upcoming holiday schedule that needed filling, and she persuaded me to do it. I did it, and I've been doing it ever since. Here's the thing. The connection to KZYX was so crucial to my well-being during those years of illness and isolation that I feel I will never be able to fully repay my debt. But I do what I can by producing forthright radio. And since you are listening, you must feel you are deriving something of value, too, from KZYX. And since you are listening, you are connected. And yes, it is Mendocino-connected, but it is so much more than just that. It's hard to know who is listening to the station and where they are listening, but I am able to see numbers and locations by nation— as to who opens up archived editions of Forthright Radio from forthright.media website. And at last count, people were downloading the program from more than 80 countries. And since Forthright Radio originates in Mendocino, that is a pretty big and broad Mendocino connection. So, all this is my way of thanking you for your support, and and encouraging you to give as you are able to keep this amazing community institution alive and thriving. And when you contribute online anytime or during our pledge drive, there's a space for leaving a comment. I would love to hear from you that far flung though we may be, we really are Mendocino Connected via KZYX and Z.